When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is your typical radio ad while eating a Crunch Bar. This is Automatic of Auto's Used Cars. This weekend only, we're having a whale. Bring the kids. See for yourself. It is huge. Gonna make a big splash. No other dealer can say they have a whale like this. When things sound dull, turn up the fun with Crunch. Hello, welcome to the Always Be Comedy podcast. My name is James Gill. I am the MC at the multi-award-winning comedy nights, Always Be Comedy. I'm joined, as always, by my comedy husband, Always Be Comedy's very own, Tim Lewis. Hello, Tim Lewis. Hello, James Gill. The Always Be Comedy podcast is where we sit down with a guest and they curate what would be their dream comedy gig. Who would open? Who would close? What sort of gigging nightmare that they've experienced must not, under any circumstances, happen at this fantasy comedy gig? It's all this and so much more. And by so much more, we often mean quite a lot of gossip. Hello, welcome to the Always Be Comedy podcast. Our guest today, one of the greats, someone who is synonymous with the night, Reese James. Tim, we, I would say that we are the founder members with the, with the, the, the chair people of the Reese James <laughs> fan club. We, we love him. We think he, Tim and I think Reese James is a super duper special talent. And I, I'm, Tim, I'm putting words in your mouth. If we had to list who we think like the very best comedians uh who, who are around today are reese would very easily be on that list easily the little boy prince of comedy as you and as a result now i also call him love that nickname for him reese is one of the sharpest minds in all of comedy one of the best writers He's put out so many shows and they're always excellent. Has such a he has such a high standard for himself, more than I'd say most comedians, and he's brilliant for it. Relentless jokes, great bits, great angles, uh, what I would call a great hang off stage, takes comedy very seriously, he's very passionate about comedy. Um, maybe I shouldn't be saying this, but the, he'd, he'd seen a comedian on television ask a question. Sorry answer a question earnestly instead of cracking a joke and reese went to me remember what your job title is and that is that's exactly reese james that is that is the vibe it's the reason why we love him um terrific episode tim reese came armed he, he won't he won't like that we're saying this but he came armed with bits and gear he'd put thought into it it was uh this is a we had high expectations because reese is a good friend and the episode, because Reese does take stuff seriously, exceeded our very lofty expectations. Yes, this is one of those episodes 
like the Josh Woodcomb one, it has a theme to the night. I believe Mike Wozniak also has a theme to the night. We won't tell you what it is, but it's brilliant. It's very Reese James. It's very specific. It's brilliant. Also, Reese, we like an exclusive. Reese James has filmed a special. And we know this because he's already filmed it. And the tech was Tim Lewis. Guilty. It was me. Back. I, I text Reese's Edinburgh Fringe run in 2019. Lovely to be back working with Reese James. It's, spoiler alert, a fantastic show. I think when it comes out, you're going to have to watch it. Also, if you've not seen Reese James live, he still has a, f- a handful of dates left on the tour. The website is reesejames.co. Dot UK. Do yourself a favor. Also, Tim, do you see the Instagram thing that Reese did where he'd, he'd uh, photoshopped himself onto different places around the UK where he still had to play? Yes. Lovely touch. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I've got the Sunderland one here. So what he did was he photoshopped himself. I'm not really helping him here because he's already played Sunderland by the time this comes out. Kevin Phillips, as a Palace fan, Yes, a Sunderland icon, of course, but also the man who scored the goal that got Palace back into the Premier League. So he's also a Palace icon. What Reese James has done, photoshopped himself sitting on Super Kevin Phillips' top scorer Golden Boot trophy for the 99-2000 season. Now, that to me, though, Tim, sort of sums up Reese because he quietly puts in lots and lots of work while giving off the vibe of a bit of a, not a slacker dude, but I don't think he gives off grafter vibes, but he is a proper grafter. Yeah, yeah, he absolutely is. He could very easily put up a nice photo of him with, here's all the dates, easy as that. A lot of people do that and it works very well, but (laughs) the amount of work and little hidden jokes he's put in to these tour announcements are just so great. It's very... Very, very fun. He has loads of hidden jokes. I remember one time he was on Mock the Week and he cracked a gag and then he he changed the subtitles that said something like the audience make reverential noises or the audience are in awe or something like that to make it look as if that is what the official BBC subtitles had <laughs> said. Just little flourishes. It's very Reesey. It's very, very Reesey. Um, I remember warming up when he did, I mean, I could talk all day about Reese, but comedians giving lectures. His lecture was an absolute beauty. A great performer, a pure comedian, a terrific writer. Uh, the absolute real deal. If if comedians were top trumps, the Reese James card would quietly be one of the strongest cards in the deck. Yes, it would. Very nice. It would. Uh, silent but deadly, Reese James. Right, cor- right, correspondence. We are delighted to say that two bits of correspondence actually happened in the flesh. Um, we got collared on the steps at a recent gig, and I hope she doesn't mind it. Well, we're, not, we're not saying her name, so I, but I hope she doesn't mind. Someone said that they'd been, they'd, you know what, Tim, I better keep it vague because it, maybe it was private. Someone had been through something private. I mean, that, if I was a listener, I'd be going, May, you've got to tell us what it is. Somebody said they'd been going through some private stuff and that they needed cheering up. This, now it just sounds like I'm making it up. But they, <laughs> they needed cheering up. And so they've been coming to always be comedy. And, and sadly, it's, it's made them much worse. No, no, no. And that, <laughs> that had done the trick. 
So that was nice. And then we got collared by a married couple. I really should have asked their names because I don't think they would have minded. Couple, Tim in the 40s or 50s. Let's go with 40s. Let's keep Let's go it. 40s. Let's go with 40s. And they said that they... Is, I reckon. Yeah, we better bloody ID them. Um, they said that they'd started listening to the podcast and then came to the gig off the back of the podcast. I can only assume that they're now on the newsletter because they've been to... Tim, I don't think I'm exaggerating, six shows in the past two weeks. I mean, honestly, that's just about less than us. Well, I, I missed one last night, so it's actually, they've been, <laughs> their attendance rate is higher than mine. I should I, Yeah, that was so, so lovely to hear. But also, yeah, someone, they properly threw themselves in to always be comedy. Love that. He, the, the husband kept going, he kept going like, I can't believe it. I can't, he kept saying that. Like, I can't believe it. Because I think in the past, I think in the past two weeks, we, Tim, we would have had, say, Kevin Bridges. Yep. Harry Hill. Yep, twice. Matafeo. Maybe. Munya Chihuahua. Fern Brady. Nina Conti. Brady. Brett Nina Goldstein. Conti. I'm just copying what Tim says. Brett Goldstein. Rob Delaney. It was at the Rob Delaney show. Rob yes. Delaney show where he collared us. Oh, no, 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 no. So we're... Listen, when you collar us, sounds like cholera. When you collar us for a chat, uh, sometimes if we go a bit quiet, the woman on the stairs was one example. It's it's often because I'm about to burst into tears, uh, but it, the, the moment is not lost on us, and we are always very grateful. And we always say we, we always say huge and heartfelt thanks. Tim, speaking of huge and heartfelt thanks, someone yes. got us a gift with a card and a bar of chocolates each. And we've put the card up at the Tommy Field. We hope it stays there permanently. So thank you very much. And that was Joe. I think it was Joe. Thank you very much, Joe. If this bit remains unedited, it's because we've gone to the Tommy Field tonight, yep. reread the card, and it's Joe. If this bit sounds weirdly dubbed on afterwards, and thanks for the card, Emma. <laughs> Uh, I just did not. I just, that was just the same voice. I just put my hand slightly over my mouth, but it just came out exactly the same. Right. Um, and, then, and then a bit more. And you know what, Tim? This is one of the longer intros, but I mean, we're sort of in it now. Some more correspondence from a comedian, a new comedian. I'm going to say their full name because they're, if they're a new comedian, we can at least say check them out. Kate Penfield. Hi, James. Started out as a comedian a year ago around Southampton. Absolutely love the podcast and would love to pop up to see a gig at some point. But wanted to say how inspiring the podcast is for me. Thank you. Uh, no, Kate, we can assure you, thank you. Uh, and then, to what, Tim, shall we do the next? Oh, no, no, we, I've got to do this one now. This was the one I missed last night. And this this is, this, this, I feel suitably ashamed. It was a, there was a train strike, right? And anyway, I'll get to the email. I'm an avid listener of your wonderful podcast, and despite living in Glasgow, was adamant that I wanted to visit your club night. By the way, the headline of his email was not good enough, right? So Tim and I saw his headline, and 
our souls left our body because we thought we thought someone was about to dish out the treatment. Uh, I, by the way, no one ever dishes out the treatment. That we we we, we, we cannot hasten that. Cannot cannot add that quickly enough. But but when you see any, a heading like that, you're like, oh, God, what's this all about? I watch a lot of live comedy up here, so have seen most of your guests. However, oh God, I haven't seen the MC Maestro James Gill in action. <sighs> I am a massive <laughs> Nick Elm fan, so when I heard he was doing a work in progress show, I got my tickets and started on the journey down south. It wasn't easy because of the train strike. So I had to travel down the night before. <laughs> oh God! But I knew it would be worth it. Can I just say that every word is, is a deserved twisted dagger in my heart. However, as delighted I was to see Nick, good, as good as ever, and meet the legend that is Tim Lewis, I was outraged to hear that James Gill couldn't be bothered coming along <laughs> because of the travel disruption. Full stop. Outrageous. Full stop. Wait for it. Cheeky, smiley, winky emoji. The relief when I saw that. Thank Regardless. God. Yeah. Oh, mate. Um, you know what? People criticise emojis. I've never. I could have kissed that emoji. <laughs> I'm, I'm at the age of forty-five. I'm. I am weirdly pro emoji for someone my age. Regardless, I thoroughly enjoyed Nick and our whole evening. I'll just need to make the trip down south some other time. When it's a little less hassle for James to bother coming to his own night, exclamation mark. You know what I've been doing? I've been doing comedy long enough to know when to take a punch. <laughs> when you first start out in comedy, and certainly when you first start out emceeing, uh, if someone like tries to pull one over, you, you, you think, oh, yeah, well, I've got to get the last word. Whereas uh, one thing that I've enjoyed learning is that sometimes you can get a big laugh uh, by taking that hit to the face not not literally i, I hasten to love the pod guy uh, love the pod guys keep up the good work now this is the bit this is the bit will i get through it without my voice cracking no brackets don't <clears throat> good luck tim don't underestimate the positive effect it has on people having a rough time <sighs> come on and being able to zone out to lots of laughs <clears throat> positive energy all the best guys graham thank you graham that email meant a lot even though um it was the email equivalent of me being tied to a chair and repeatedly punched to the face i i <laughs> graham i deserved it uh keep your correspondence coming in call it a new challenge can you make james cry it's quite an easy challenge i'll be honest <laughs> the, t the team at alwaysbecomedy.com and we're across the socials at always be comedy before i carry on crying we'll get the maestro on please welcome one of the greats reese james right we're joined today by reese james and the reason why i'm already reticent to plow on is because reese knows how much tim and i love reese Reese also isn't massive on compliments. Reese, do they, do compliments make you squirm straight out of the gate? No, I don't know where this myth. In fact, it's you who's who's pushing this myth out there, and it I believe is the main reason I don't get any compliments. I love compliments. Who doesn't love compliments? Absolutely love being complimented. Um, 
you know, there's things you can do. You can do quizzes of your love language um, if for your relationship to work out, you know, exactly what it is that your partner wants if you haven't worked that out by now. And often it'll be stuff like, you know, words of affirmation or gift giving or affection. I don't think there's technically, I mean, words of affirmation is this, but technically like a compliment section. And so I think I was in some point in my relationship made to do this quiz. And I was like, look, just tell me that my outfits are good. I'm a genius. And I'm the best lover you've ever had. <laughs> this is this is all I need. Hang on. This I is all I need. You're the best. You're the best lover you've I got think. to tell me. And actually listeners, if you wouldn't mind. If you wouldn't mind, Richard Gill, in your blogs, okay, I need you to start being a bit more specific. <laughs> Reese James is the best lover I have ever had. Uh, well, Reese, look, Tim and I, we we do think you are a genius. We're, we're, you're one of the best comedians we have ever seen. Reese, I don't think, right, this is, the, this is the problem. I don't think you you realise just how brilliant you are. Oh, no. No, the problem is that other people don't realise that. <laughs> I, I, I know it. Tim, the, the there's Br the clip. The, the TV industry don't seem to... <laughs> oh, clip option number one. Tim, <laughs> Tim already is like, oh, yeah. <laughs> this is going to be... You're going to have to post the whole thing. I'm doing... It's all clips. I'm doing clickbait today. But hang on. So you are aware of how... Of, you are... Hang on, I'm not setting a trap here. Ah, no, so not, not really. Aware. No, no, no. I mean, like... I don't know. You, not really. No, I wouldn't be genuine. Like to clarify, I'm not genuinely going around going, "I am a genius." That is obviously mental. Um, I obviously, you know, like this type of comedy I do, or I wouldn't do it. Um, so obviously, like you know, I get hold of a bit and I like it, and I think, "Great, I've got this great bit." But it's fallible because sometimes you're on your own tour and that bit's not absolutely flying, and you're like, "Ah, maybe I suck." But that's just it all the time, isn't it? You just think, "God, I'm." You just I've. Fully flip between no middle ground of I absolutely suck and I'm the worst at this in the world. And my God, Mount Rushmore should just be me four times. <laughs> Clip number two. Yeah, another, there you go. Clip number six. <laughs> I better drop this running gag because it's going to get very boring. Very <laughs> Clip number 19. Reese re logging off. Um, but I think that is like kind of the... Um, that's sort of, I would argue, sort of how most people feel, right? Is anyone just going, I'm mediocre at this? Is anyone bothering to do that? Surely you have to have that sort of, you have to be a bit bipolar with it and think you have these down moments of going, God, I'm terrible. And that's what makes you work harder to make it good. And then thinking, God, this is great. But then obviously that can only last so long or you'd be absolutely insane. And then, yeah, you have gigs where you're like, that was fine. That was pretty good. But that's more about the gig. I don't know. Also, I have a thing where like, I um, write, after every tour show, I give it a little score and then write a little sort of one sentence to just remind myself what the gig was like. Quite often it's like, I was great. <laughs> Quite often I'm like, the performance I did was exactly how I wanted it to be. Because it really fucks me off and frustrates me when it isn't. When I come off, even when the gig was great, I'm like, I don't know what I was doing there. Like it wasn't, I was mealy mouthed like I'm being in this exact moment, ironically. I was taking ages to get everything out. Um, I was doing it too quickly or too slowly. All of this sort of stuff, it winds me up. Even if I come off and it's been like a barnstorming gig, I'll be still frustrated by that. But the thing that doesn't frustrate me is when the gig is like good or like, you know, pretty good, but not great. And I did it exactly. I sort of represented the show exactly how I want to. So it's just like constant scrutiny of yourself. So 
But that's why you go between I'm shit and I'm good. Now, this, we've done a lot of episodes for this to be the first time I've ever asked this question. Can you just share with the listener what it's like? I think the, what the, the feedback we get, the listeners love the insight. Can you mm. share what it's like when you know you've done one of your signature bits and you perform it on a tour and, it, and you, it, you, you pause for the, what is normally the thunderous roaring laughter and, you know, what is that like when, when the hammer doesn't quite drop? I'd say you know if that's going to happen well in advance of that because if it's like the best bit of the show and it's not it doesn't fly it's probably not your opening bit if it's the best bit of the show and that means that the gig has been a certain way so far already sometimes it's to do with like the shape of the room or whatever sometimes it can just be a bit sterile a little bit like art centery crowd where they're just a bit reserved and so they're laughing at everything but it's never going to kick into fifth gear kind of thing and so, but you already know that by that point. So if you've got this great bit that comes like an hour into the show, you know, going in, this isn't going to absolutely destroy. There's obviously still a little bit of hope in the back of your head being, maybe this is the bit, but you kind of feel like that with every bit. Maybe this will be the one. Um, it just feels a bit like, usually I would sort of not really overly reference it, but I'd make a little comment, I guess. Um not to be like, that stuff's gold, how dare you? Like I would when I was much newer, when people used to say that deserved more. Um, it would always be, I think I was probably guilty of that because I felt it suited my onstage persona. And as you tell, can tell from this interview so far, my offstage reality. But it doesn't feel that bad. It's more like, if it, it's much rarer that you're actually having a banger of a gig and then you get to this bit and the bit just randomly doesn't work. And I think one of the, I was looking through my sort of tour reviews yesterday and it was like, I think I did have one that was like, was absolutely smashing it. And then just like the last 10 minutes just didn't, didn't work. And I've got no idea. I've got no memory of it. So I'm glad I wrote it down, but that's insane. That must, yeah, you must just feel, I, I imagine I was just panicking. It just like didn't sweat for the whole gig and then suddenly was drenched by the end. I was, I always find it fascinating. It's, it's like you've hit, it's like in football, it's like you've hit the shot towards goal. You're almost running away celebrating. And then for whatever yeah. reason, it's not gone in. And you're like, what? Yeah, so the, but it's, it's as insane. There? It's as insane a feeling as you've hit the shot. You run away to celebrate and the ball explodes in midair. <laughs> well, you're like, how is this? What is? Yeah. Or it hits a beach ball like it did for Darren <laughs> Bent. <laughs> but that went in. <laughs> you're just like, what? When has this ever happened before? And you just can't understand. And then you start questioning like, what happened? Did I accidentally like say a slur in the build up to that and then offend everyone? Did I slag off this town somehow without realizing? Am I doing some sort of illegal gesture? You know, you sometimes you suddenly check in that your flies are done up. Just all, all sorts of stuff. You're suddenly going, what's happened there? And it's to do with that. Often it's to do with attitude, isn't it? You just like went into the bit with the wrong vibe without realizing. I remember getting it. There's a, a specific act who, who I think is amazing. And I got them on and they didn't have an amazing one. And I, I, it's funny you say that. I thought, did I say their name wrong? Right, right, right. Did yeah, I do something just, that, that misset this up? It's mad, the sort of like tiny little details like that that can have such an impact that the audience would never think that they're, because they're not consciously. I did a gig years ago and Compare introduced me as Brennan Reese instead of uh, Reese James. I had to think of my own name there. And I then sort of replied and went, oh, give it up for your compare and then gave them a wrong name. Um, and it got, I remember it getting a laugh 
Uh, but then me realizing I learned a valuable lesson that day, which is that laugh is not worth the l- loss of authority you now have for the host not even knowing your name, especially given like in that instance, the audience would not have known that that name was wrong. They wouldn't have known I wasn't Brendan Reese. They've never heard either of these names at the time. This was, you know, 15 years ago. So there was no point. You, and also the compo has just gone, please welcome. So they've not probably not even registered it. And just because you get the laugh, it's like then everyone knows. All oh, right. Even your colleague doesn't know you fucking are. You must be shit. If that happened now, if I got you on and I said, Brennan Reese, that's a big, that's a terrible example now. It doesn't work because now people- It's different people, context people... now, especially at your gig. Yeah, yeah it's a different context because then I would have to address it because there's a chance that a percentage of the audience do know that that's incorrect. So what? So tr- if you were to travel back in time, what would you What would you do differently rather just than- Just do the gig, just start the gig normally. Just not mention it, just not reference it because- yeah, when there's a when it's most likely that over sort of ninety percent of the audience wouldn't even know that that was wrong, you just lose. I just think you lose something. They just don't trust you for some reason. I once I once had a compare. I was I was a, a new act, and I once had a compare say, really good friend of mine. I love hanging out with them. You know, really laying it on thick. And they said, please welcome my really. I love them now. You're gonna love them. Please welcome my great friend Andy Gill. <laughs> Love that. Love never that. Met, sort of never met that compare before or since. Steve Bouget introduced me at a student gig once, and the students were quite reticent anyway, because it was like freshers and they're shy. And he was like building it up, just being like, This guy, you're gonna love him, he's hilarious. He's one of my best mates in comedy. Wow, he's an acquaintance, like that. And it got a really big laugh. But then I went, Oh, that's like... and he also we were best friends in comedy at that time. So I was like, well, all right, I know you're slamming me, but now I don't have what am I supposed to do to open to get them to it was a fucking nightmare. There was, I mean, I won't say who it was. There was once a promoter slash MC who I was, I was, I was the open spot. It was like big, it was a big gig for me. And I, I told them a couple of stories about X getting my name wrong, including the Andy Gill story. And then they went on and deliberately got my name wrong. Mm. And it felt, it felt like a real dick move. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like just, it could only be funny to you because the audience don't understand this joke and don't have the context. And you're also the least likely person to find it funny. It, it felt like they're deliberately sabotaged. And they, oh, but by the way, listeners, you know, I'm, you know, I'm not a dick by now, I hope, but I'm going to sound like one now. I then absolutely roofed the gig. And then the MC afterwards wanted to give me feedback as to why the set wasn't very good. <laughs> I can't wait to tell you who it was. I'm gonna, in fact, I'll tell you now, Tim, please edit this out. Yeah. Oh, no way. Yeah. Great. Keeping my reaction. What? And he's been dead for years, for example, <laughs> just well to throw them off the scent. Well played. Well played. Now, Reese, this tour of yours, it's the best show of yours. Oh, stop. I... All right. Sorry. Yeah. Sorry. That's something <laughs> terrible. It's the best show it's I've the ever best seen. Show. And I include. <laughs> Thank you. I include <laughs> Jerusalem starring Mark Ryans. No, it's it is a, it's a phenomenal show. It's hilarious. Now this when this comes out, there are still actually there's still a, a, an opportunity to see this show live on tour. Yes, I believe so. In you know your Brightons, your Manchester's, and others. I can't remember where. There's like I think there's like ten shows left by the time this comes out, maybe. Let's do this. Let's... In the UK, and then I might do it in a different country. Oh, really? Yeah, I'm going to do the Bratislava Fringe. Right, you can still see Reese, Swindon, Gloucester, Worcester, Newbury. It's more than I realised. 
and I'm sort of in it now, Andover, Lancaster, Manchester, Southampton, not, I mean, there's loads, Brighton, Corn Exchange, December the 3rd. Mm. Correct. Those are correct that dates. <laughs> now, we love an exclusive on the Always Be Comedy podcast. Is it true, Reese? He says no. <laughs> Is it true? <laughs> Is it true that uh, we will be able to watch this as a special? Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow. What a get. What a lucky guest. Yeah, at some point. And um, I'd say some of your intel for that might be the fact that Tim um, did uh, the tech at the recording of the special. Might be where you got your info. Might not be. <laughs> oh, man. I've, uh, that really tickled me. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I recorded it at Wilton's Music Hall in East London, Aldgate. A beautiful venue. The oldest music hall in the world or England or London. Can't remember. One of them. And it's so nice. It looks so good in there. I mean, it is a wonderful wedding venue, so I'd recommend it for that. But also as a place to do a comedy gig. But don't record your show there because I've already done that. And no. I don't know where it will go out. I don't know where it will go out. So there's not much of an exclusive. I'm going to try. I've, James, I'm going to try and sell it. Okay. I'll be trying to sell it. But this is a clip that you will replay when I'm plugging it for free on YouTube in about a month's time. Reese, one thing I've, I've never asked you... How did you, how did you get into comedy? Was there, you were, were you a comedian at, at uni or mm. did you ever have a proper job? What was the, what was the Reese James? I'm going to go with journey. What, what happened there? Had one proper job. I was 15 and I worked in a golf club, Redbourne golf club. And I was like a sort of uh, waiter slash kitchen sink urchin and uh, cleaning the plates, taking food out, shouting hammer cheese toasty. And then finding who ordered that, spilling things down people, etc. I worked there for one week. At one point, the, my boss said, Reese, you're quite arty, aren't you? Based on nothing. It must have been my look, which I think is sort of actually quite a terrifying insult. You're, when you you're wearing a beret. It. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it was all that smoking I kept doing <laughs> as I looked off into the, into the golf course pensively on the 18th tee. Um, and it was like, can you do the specials board? And like, literally, this is my only job I've ever had. It was like, you're quite arty. Can you do the specials board? And I spent six hours doing that specials board just to waste time. And I, I worked there for five days. And one of the days was writing the specials board. And then you'd be unsurprised to hear they said, actually, mate, I think we're going to get someone else. Um, and I was like, yeah, fair enough. I'm rubbish at this. But also when I got that paycheck for the five days, I was like, oh, my God, I'm rich. This is the richest anyone's ever been. It was something like 160 pounds or something like that. And I was like, this is crazy to have this much money. But I was 15. Um, you know, now that would be what, four gigs? And then I just started when I was, just before I went to uni, yeah, I did a first gig in sixth form and then went to uni, did it all through uni to the detriment of my sort of social life at uni. But um, again, I was like a student who had money because I buy sort of second year, I started getting 50 quid here and there for gigs and no one else had any money, did they? So, but I, but also like I had a bit of cash at uni from doing these little gigs around the North. I went to uni in Manchester, but I was never available to spend it on like a night out at a nightclub because I was going to Staley Bridge to do 10 minutes instead. Like all my mates would be going out to Sankey's, this nightclub in Manchester, and I'd be like, sorry, but I'm going to open for Mick Ferry. That's how I spent my time. Mate, that's awesome. So while you were at uni, how many gigs did you, do you reckon you did? Um, not that many in the first year. 
the good thing about doing it in Manchester, I, by second and third year, loads. I was gigging loads, um, and like coming back to London, doing loads of gigs and stuff. But I Manchester was great because when I started, I've started in like kind of London area, and so all the gigs I did were just competitions because I was like, that's how you can get stage time. I didn't really know about the open mic circuit very much, and I was like, there was oh, but you can do these heats of like laughing horse competition, and so you think you're funny or whatever. So I just entered those purely for stage time, for for like to get a gig with an audience. Did those, got through a couple of them, not very far. And then you go to Manchester and there's basically, when I was there, there was basically no open mic scene at all, but there was loads of open spots. So every time you wanted to, I'd like done 10 gigs by the time I got there, but every gig from then on was just an open spot on a professional night. So it would have a proper crowd, loads of people there. All the other acts are amazing, like professional comics who've been doing it for 20 years. And then you've got to not drop the ball basically in the middle, even though you're brand new. So it, I think it makes you get better so much quicker because you're not surrounded by everyone else who's just starting out and doesn't know how to do this. You're surrounded by people who really fucking do know how to do this. And you just don't want to get dropped. You don't want to like blow the opportunity because, you know, they could invite you back and pay you some money next time. So it just makes you up your game so quickly. And if you like, you know, they would always be like, stick around and watch the whole gig. Trust me and kind of see how it's done. And that was invaluable. Wow, Reese, this is this is sensational. Reese James Intel, who were the guys when you saw them? This is like Batman Begins, but Reese James. Mm. Who were the guys when you saw them? You were like, ah, okay, this is, this is. I'm getting a bit of a schooling here. Um, uh, back in those days, the guys who like it was just like, oh, these are the cl- these are the closers around Manchester. When I started out, were um, Tonks. At- no, I, I don't know. I didn't really work with him very much. But it was like Dan Nightingale was like the the like celebrity. When as soon as I got to Manchester, it was like, have you seen this guy, Dan Nightingale? And he was like the celebrity there. And he would just be like an absolute roofer. Uh, Tom Rigglesworth was just like killing, just killing everything. And I was just such a fan. Mick Ferry, as I say, uh, Alan Cochran and um, Justin Morehouse were the ones who would like close these gigs. But then also they get some guys like... um. You don't hear much of anymore. Like Simon Bly was like closing these gigs and was just such a, the loveliest, most welcoming man in the world. You'd be in car shares with all these people as well often because you all just go from, we all lived in Manchester and they'd be like Oldham or like on the outskirts or something. We'd all just get in a car share and go generally. Uh, They were the guys who were killing it. Sarah Millican was like breaking through to like TV, absolute superstardom. And so if Sarah Millican turned up or something, it was like so exciting when you're a brand new open spot and someone famous, genuinely hugely famous. All, All of these comics were famous to me regardless of what work they'd done on telly, because they were a professional comedian who was headlining a gig. But Sarah Millican, it was like, had her own TV show on TV at the time, but then still would just be like randomly popping up with the notepad at these gigs in the North. And you'd be like, oh my God, so it would this, just be mind blowing. So this is Millican post like breaking through on Cats and Apollo. I think so, yeah, I think so. I mean, you'd have to check the timeline on this. I went to uni in 2009. So really this is probably 2010 and 11 I'm talking about. I think she had her TV show by then, but I'm not sure. But even still was like a big star. I was going to say, I take it it was obvious that she was on her way to superstardom. She definitely, the feeling was that she already, it was like way beyond that. Brilliant. It it was like, oh, that's as big as, that's as much as you can make it already. But still was at these, always, quite often at these gigs, working up stuff. So what age were you when, when you did your first gig? 17. Mate, this is like Bill Hicks, Eddie Murphy territory. <laughs> yeah, I, people say that to me a lot, actually. 
And they say, therefore, Reese, you've got to stop saying that. This is Bill Hicks, Eddie Murphy territory. <laughs> Opening line. <laughs> Reese, that's awesome. That's awesome. That does explain it because the first, the first time I ever saw you would have been at Always Be Comedy, I reckon, over 10 years ago or whenever you've signed with mm. Lisa White. But from, yeah. from the off, you were just, I just thought, wonderful. But, but Reese, obviously, now when you start off hot, there's always the worry that an act plateaus. So, you know, that the, the, the first couple of years, it might be as good as that act ever gets because they've said everything that they've got to say. How on earth did you get better as, as the years progressed? There's been, an, there, there's been such a progression with you, Reese. There was a period where I did clock that I was like, in terms of, you said all the things you got to say. My generation of comics was obsessed with the idea of doing a new hour every year in Edinburgh. I'm not saying that doesn't exist anymore. I think it exists a bit less, but I think out of necessity, it isn't, it isn't a business model anymore so much. So there's no need unless you're just like, you really want to. Um, but, you know, Twitter was the only social media really then. So you couldn't, you could get any followers on and you couldn't sell a tour off the back of that. So you had to go to Edinburgh and do a new hour every year. And also just the culture was like, you got to have new stuff all the time. And just everyone was obsessed. So you would just finish Edinburgh and immediately start writing a new one. And I think I did five in a row before four in a row. And before I realized I was like, that fourth one was hard work because I found it really hard to write. I think it was my fourth hour because I was just like, I don't fucking have anything to say at all. And it's not even that you have to be saying something. I was just like, I have no ideas. I've, the tank is empty and I don't know how to fill it up. In the end, I'm quite happy with what that show became. It had like, it had, it was the sort of the biggest set piece sort of show I had. And I used to do like poems and stuff in shows and light changes and shit like that. And lots of videos and stuff as well. But this one had a thing where I was, I had a routine about whether or not we're being sort of watched through our laptops and people who get really paranoid about all of this tech stuff and data and all this shit. And I was saying it's nonsense. And I had another routine about a guy I lived with who didn't have a towel. And I had another routine about seeing a raccoon, a video of a raccoon drop some candy floss into a lake and it disappear and the raccoon lose its mind. And how all these things affected me and how that felt like it was from a Japanese game show. Now, in the show, I would do some crowd work with someone in a certain seat about how many towels they had. And typically, if you could pick a middle-aged person, they would have 40 towels. And then I would explain, yeah, well, my housemate has zero towels, et cetera, et cetera. And how I caught him drying himself with a glove and so on. Um, <laughs> with a glove that he put on his hand and just rubbed his body. It was ridiculous. Anyway, this culminates all of these things together in me revealing at the end of the show that I'd actually been secretly filming on a hidden camera, the bloke in the front row that I'd asked the towels question to. It would then come on screen, the live feed of this man from a genuine hidden camera that I had. And then I would say, and it's all part of a Japanese game show, click a thing. And then it would be like framed. It would be like people watching him in the corner, pointing and laughing or whatever. Now, as an ending, this was like an absolute banger that saved me because yeah. the rest of the show was piffle. There's sure. like a lot of filler in that show that was like nonsense. And then I had this ending and people would be like, whoa, this is great. It was like a magic trick. And so the reviews I got for this show were like the best reviews I've ever had. But, but I was like, the show is shit. And that taught me a valuable lesson as well of just like, none of this matters. No one knows what they're talking about. Loads of the content of this show is just absolute filler, just routines that should be two minutes that are 10. Just really getting the most out of stuff to fill the time. The show was underrunning a little bit as well, but bang at the end. And then as long as people leave going, wow, then they're just not going to remember all of that shit. You just need a good closer. That's all you need. It's a bit because like the film, The Usual Suspects. All right. I know it's not dated brilliantly give it anyway I'm sure you can piece together what i mean by that 
I think that's a it's a good movie, but because the ending is so incredible, I think it makes you think the film is better than it actually is. Yeah, and I think that is often true with comedy. So what you've done there is you've t- you've tied it all together at the end, and everyone's gone yeah. genius. But you know that maybe eighty, maybe ninety percent of that show wasn't that good. But you've done the magic oh, trick. What's mad is I, I tied it all together, right? Which they like. What I'm tying together is rubbish. <laughs> so I'm tying together some. It's not ribbon. You know what I mean? It's some tattered old piece of crap string that no one liked in the first place. Because I've made a bow out of it, they're going, "Oh, oh, that's nice." Yeah, but you know, that's how it, you know what? Do you know the importance of an exit song at a comedy gig? It's so much more than you think. The right song that matches the mood of how you ended it and so that people go out and they stay in this mood. And music is obviously better than comedy. Obviously. You can't compete with that. One of my favorite bands, which is a band called The Rhythm Method, they asked me to, can we open it for you at Hackney Empire? And I was like, fucking no way. I'm not following music. Are you mad? Absolutely not. It's way better than what I'm about to do. It's ma- I always find it insane. This is why you sometimes do get comedians opening for bands because it's like, yeah, com- comedy's all right. Music, are you mad? I, mate, I am. I am seeing a gig a couple of weeks ago, and it had been a. It was a brilliant show, and I wrapped up. For whatever reason, the music didn't come on. The night's ruined. The evening is ruined. And the the weird energy in the room. Yeah. As people like shuffled out in awkward silence. Yeah, so it's, it's horrible. Within five seconds, they'd have gone from what a great night to this is a bit oh. awkward. Yeah, this is tense. Suddenly it's tense and horrible. Yeah, I completely agree. You need the right song and the amount of times. It's, I mean, it's the same in films and stuff as well, isn't it? Like the right song at the end of a thing. It completely changes the complexion of the whole thing. So like, you know, we all worry about our pre-show playlist setting the right atmosphere. The most important thing is the song when they're leaving. Pre-show playlist is just play it loud so that they'll have a conversation over it and then they're used to being loud, basically, I think is the trick of that. So what Tim Lewis has done a few times and he's got applause breaks off the back of it, played a song that's related to something that's happened in the show. Ah, that's nice. But what are we talking? You got any examples on the front of your mind? Top of my... Tim, Tim, if you want to jump on and go, yeah, I do remember actually, and one of them was blah, 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 blah. Um... No, some talks about Little Mix, I play Little Mix. It's normally it's about as complicated as that. <laughs> Love it. It works. Love that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's always like it's always good. I always have a sort of back reference, I guess. I've got my show, this show currently has got loads of um uh it's a lot of through line about New Year's resolutions in it and about how we should actually give them to each other rather than ourselves and society would improve a lot. Um and I get someone in the audience to spend the whole show writing one for me and then hand it to me at the end. And then the show ends on the Boney M upbeat version of Old Lang Syne. Of course it does. What else could it be? Great fun. Great fun version of it. But the problem is that sometimes you forget to tell sort of the tech people at the venue, by the way, when that song finishes, if the audience is still shuffling out, can you play another song? And what happens is it ends and then it is back to silence because the tech person's like gone. Oh, God. And then you just tech- they're shuffling out and it's, it's that silence is deafening. Tech person's gone for a cigarette. Exactly. Hey, yeah, yeah. When did you know? Oh, hang on a minute. There's a living in this. Right. So I was listening um, to Ed Gamble's episode of this, and his answer was incredibly humble and nice. And as soon as you asked this question to Ed, I was like, oh, I was 17 when I started. There was no doubt in my mind. 
I was this will I will be doing this. I will do wow. this. Not this is before my first gig. Like I'm telling you, it's not even like it's not like an arrogant thing of I went on stage the second I said that first gag and got that standing ovation. I knew I'm the next Lee Evans. It's none of that bullshit. Before I even did it or even really wrote a joke or entertained the idea of like actually physically doing it, I was like, I'm going to be a stand-up comedian. It wasn't a calling. I just wanted to be. And so I was like, well, I just will then. I, I, that's the sort of way I was raised. I'm from the generation of you can do anything. You know, that's how I was taught. You can do anything you set your mind to. So I was like, cool, great. Well, I'll be a stand-up comedian. So I just entered it going like, this is they're just this will just happen. I'll just make this happen. I'm from the generation where you were told you can't do anything. So I was 31 yeah. when I did my first gig. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You're not allowed to do anything. You're not allowed to do anything. Oh, no, I, I mean, I've done a couple in my 20s, but, but in terms of four, four reels, is it, I was 31. But uh, yeah, that is that. You know what, Reese? Are we wrong? My wife and I, we we want we try to inspire our kids with it's important that you follow a passion, etc. But I think that's a healthy mindset. Like your mindset, I feel was. That's a good that's a good mindset to have. Yeah. And also I was like, you know, massively privileged position to be able to then say. And so I thought I would because, you know, I didn't have to go out and earn a living immediately to support the rest of my family or whatever. It was just like I was a teenager. So that was already massively beneficial. I was going to uni. I mean, all of these things then just like slotted into place to make this easy. Going to uni. So like finances wise as well. It's just fine. It's just like sort of you're getting this loan. It's like a maintenance loan that means that you live. And then I was like, well, uni, I've got so much time because it's like you do a lecture a day and then just round exams, you're busy. You've got so much time. I'll just write jokes and then go and do gigs. But if I hadn't started, if I had, if it had been like I'd have been 25, then you're fucked because you're like, well, I do have a job. I have to make money. But by the time I finished uni, I could make like a little bit of money from comedy that just about kept me ticking over. And then I started getting writing gigs. That's what where I started wow. actually making money. I started getting writing gigs from other comics for like when they were going on a show or something. I started being asked and just being like a hundred quid here and there to just write some gags for like the panel show appearance or something like that. And probably, it, yeah, in answer to your actual question, when that started, it was like, oh, I can like go and live in London. That's when I probably the first time I realized, great, this is fine. I can do this because I can live in London completely off my own back kind of thing. So it was a mix of, when I first moved to London, I was doing like writing gigs for other people, doing stand-up gigs, and I was hosting this Tottenham fan channel. Oh, yeah. And the Tottenham fan channel was just paying the rent. So like I knew no, even if I did no gigs that month, I could just about pay the rent with these Tottenham videos. And once that was there, I was like, this is fine. This is, you can relax a little bit. What, what Can you just say a bit about that? Because I remember you telling me at the time, how were you able to earn so well off those fan channels? Because that's not a thing anymore, is it? That sort of that way of earning money, or is or is it have, have things changed? Because because those fan channels, there were there were a couple of acts who were making really good money off them, um, but but what happened there? It was literally just so we never saw anything to do with like ad revenue or anything like that. A company had these channels, so the Arsenal one I think was the actual genuinely original like actual fan channel that fans just made like proper bootleg start where they just like took a camera to some games. By the time I was doing this Spurs one, it was like, it was a massive company. It was Fremantle. We're just making them. And what? so I was employed, I was employed by Fremantle or like a an arm of Fremantle. So it was at the Fremantle building and it was, I think it was called shot glass. And they just had the Chelsea one, the Spurs one, 
think the Man United one might have been linked. And they were just doing these, but they were just getting fans in to do it. Ideally, like Ian Smith did the Man United one, I think, like comedian fans was really useful because you know, just think you bring in a lot of effort to it. But it was me and a couple of others doing the Spurs one. So they just literally paid us a fee, like a gig. They just paid us gig, basically gig money every time we did it. And we went in once a week and did it. And I would write it. I'd go there in the morning, write like a video. Top five stocky rude boys who ever played for Spurs. Aaron Lennon, Andy Reid, your classics, Jermaine Defoe. Um, and then I'd go through them like that, listicle things, but then also debates and shit like that. And we'd just be there for half a day, paid gig money. And that just sorted me out. That was just like, cool, I can calm down. I don't have to freak out about, you know, rent all the time. But that's, I think, the, yeah, I think they assumed these will make loads of money on ad revenue. And then I think they didn't. And this is why they eventually collapsed. If they'd stuck with it, they might have done, because that is where a lot of dudes make the money, isn't it? Yeah, it felt like it was a bit... It felt behind the times in that it was way behind the Arsenal one, but it feels ahead of its time in that now, like, these, like, streamed watch-alongs are fucking enormous. Way bigger than anything we ever did. I mean, look at Mark Goldbridge. I mean, incredible. Right, right, exactly. And it was the, we, if we were doing it now, I guess it would be, like, live streams. We, like, get in a room with all Tottenham branding and watch and react. But I wouldn't do it because I want to go to the match instead. Reese James, you, you're going to put together, you're going to curate your ideal comedy gig. I think I know the answer, but I'm going to ask it. Do you have any pre-gig rituals? Um, do you know what? I actually, when you ask this, I always think that you are more qualified to answer this than the guest because you will have witnessed them so much. Do you know what I mean? You've, yeah. Like you've, but you're on stage, I suppose. Tim is probably the most qualified person to answer this of anyone in the comedy industry. The answer is lots of pissing. Um, do I will go to the toilet a number of times, but I'll do that the same thing before like a long journey. I'll just like keep going and convince myself I need a wee again. I just will. Oh, it's a psychological thing I've always had. It's pathetic. Um, so I'll do that a lot. I on tour will steam all of my clothes. I have a portable clothes steamer. I do that every venue. They say, what's that? And then I say, look at this. And then I wow them with my steamer. And then it's the best bit of the night. They don't enjoy the show, but they think back to the steaming and they go, no, it was worth having him here. That was fantastic. I haven't ironed for years is all I'll say. Um, and then I will, as Tim points out in the chat of this Zoom, lint roll myself into oblivion there mustn't be any lint on me i you know what because basically this is i have changed the face of the comedy industry with my lint rolling to the extent there are now gigs that have lint rollers backstage because they watched me lint roll so relentlessly and not for me they often i sometimes i get to gigs and promoters will be like oh, i've got lint rollers here and i'm like well i hope you've not gotten for me because i've obviously got my own i don't need your lint rollers thank you i've got the best lint rollers in the game and Tom, Tom Lucy said to me once, you don't need lint rollers. You never have any lint on you. And I'm like, yes, of course I don't because I'm constantly lint rolling. Are you insane? I found my, I, this is an addiction, right? I found myself not too long ago, lint rolling the inside of a shoe. That's when, you know, might have gone too far here. Ha, have you lint rolled or always be comedy? I, I would have probably pre-rolled. I would have pre-rolled before getting, a sort of a gig where there's like, if I'm not bringing a backpack, I'm not often bringing a bag to always be comedy. I'm just turning up. Then I'm not, there's no lint rollers in my pockets. They're in my bag, but I would have definitely done it a lot before. And I have a, I have a ginger cat. So it is a necessity out of that for that reason. But I was doing this pre-cat as well because I just don't like lint on things. I mean, my style, like my appearance is quite 
clean cut. And I just think if I'm then like tatting clothes, I don't know. I've just always felt like that. But I do. It's not just for comedy though. This is why I don't see it as a pre-gig ritual. This is before I leave the house to go anywhere. I'm lint rolling nonstop. My brain, I wonder if any listeners had the same experience. When you started talking, I genuinely thought you were doing a bit about rolling a blunt. <laughs> yeah, I just I have to have um, a lot of doobies. I had a doobie inside a shoe the other day. Uh, or I just can't get into the my vibe. You know what I'm like on stage? I just seem so high and so, so chilled and zen, aren't I? Such a stoner dude. That's really... Yeah, <laughs> that's my act. It always has been. But, you know, I've got, like a, I've got like a parting... Um, you know, I've got like a hair parting. Sean McLaughlin once described, I came off stage and he was comparing and then he went back on and said, what an angry Mormon. And I think that sort of sums the act up a little bit, doesn't it? Hang on. Well, now we all love Sean McLaughlin, but he can't finger wag about having a lovely parting. <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and being an angry Mormon. I mean, good God, especially in the suit that he's wearing these days. I think he was projecting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Maybe he was talking about himself and I just thought it was about me. Anyway, what an angry Mormon. I'm back. <laughs> Right, superb. Who MCs the gig? Actually, if you wouldn't mind, because I've got some stipulations with the gig, I'd like to do MC last. I'd like to start with the opener. Okay, and here's why. It's sort of themed this gig in that I want the gig to be abysmal. So I've booked a lineup based on the idea of the gig is going terribly. It's chaos. It's a fucking nightmare and it's basically unplayable. And they, the reason it's unplayable is because it's at the Coventry Showcase Cinema. I don't know if you've ever played the Coventry Showcase Cinema, James, have you? No. It's a gig. I don't know if it's still going actually as a gig, but it was a gig in the sort of comedy circuit for a long time. And I don't think it's a gig that many comedians ever played twice. It was one of those ones that just ended up on the blacklist to your agent going, never send me that again, ever book me there again. Um, I, I, I need to look up if it is a thing because I hope it isn't so that we don't hurt anyone's feelings. I don't mind. I don't, I genuinely, I don't mind. I, I can tell you who books it. I don't mind if his feelings are hurt. I think I told him at the time, this is the worst gig in the country. He knew that as well. But yeah, so basically, I want the gig to be at Coventry Showcase Cinema. I did it once. It was chaos. What's great about this gig, though, because it's in, it's in like one of the big rooms in a cinema. They get rid of all the seats in the front section, the cinema seats, and they put long tables where people face each other, like banquet tables almost, where like, and they specifically would sell to groups. So it'd just be like each table of 20 would be a stag or hen do, basically. No. The time I did it, there were just four of those tables. Everyone was just in, in tracksuits for some reason. It was like the big night out. And I was just like, all right, fine. And they were all having fights about each other's balloons were getting tangled with each other's balloons that were like tied to the back of their chairs. And the balloons would be like hen night balloons or stag night or birthday ones. Anyway, it was a fucking disaster looking at it. Then the whole back section of the cinema, which is bigger than the whole front section, was just empty. So it was just cinema seats that were just empty. And then the stage is just like a little block that's been put in that you like walk up to. And so you just wait at the back of the room to go on. So the walk to the stage is so long. It, it takes like 90 seconds. So you have to be on the way the second they're like, okay, we're going to bring an act on so that you're even close to it there. It was unplayable the one time I did it. And what's great about it is that I then sort of, I did it quite early in a Manchester car share. And everyone had a terrible time. You know, some laughs were had by some acts, like a little bit, but it was just like impossible. And what's great is that, you know, I would then witness loads of comedians sort of posting about it on Twitter, being like, God, I'm at the Coventry Showcase. This is the worst gig of all time or whatever. And then it became like a, almost like fable, like a mythical story that would happen in text. And what's the perfect thing is that the green room 
was like behind the projectors. You'd like go up and you'd be behind the projectors for all the screens, like in this little sort of raised sort of like alleyway tunnel thing. You'd be up there and so you could see into all the screens. And at the end of that was just a room with a leather sofa in it. And the entire wall of that room was the poster for the pursuit of happiness. And so everyone would just have the worst death of their careers and then go back into a green room and take a selfie in front of the pursuit of happiness and feel like it was just the perfect little, just made you feel better about it because you just get a little laugh out of the fact that that what a perfect film poster to have. Of all of all the film posters to have. It's the perfect one. Um, yeah. So I want the gig to be in the commentary showcase cinema and I want it to be utter, utter chaos. And it has affected who I'm choosing. Now, I'm not choosing these people because I want to see them die on their ass. The reason I'm choosing them, because I also, these people are all brilliant when a gig is going well. I love this, all of these acts. But all of them have something, whether it's a fearlessness or just a special skill that comes to the fore when it's going badly. They all have something that other people don't. I know exactly what you are talking about. Something just opens up in them when it's going badly. It's they are so authentic. The way they deal with it, it's like, and the first one already been mentioned, Sean McLaughlin. That's my opener. Sean McLaughlin you is the absolute champion of this. As you were talking about the certain acts that I with my hand to God, McLaughlin straight in the head. I don't know what happens because Sean, when it's going well, Sean Sean is one of the best comedians in the world, genuinely. Absolutely. Unbelievable. And he's the one from my generation that all of my generation of comics were just like, oh, fucking hell, Sean. I wish I was as good as Sean. From the get-go, from the moment we started. And still, he's like one of my favourites in the world. His stuff is just unbelievable. His delivery is amazing. He's just a fucking flawless comedian. And yet, when it's going badly or when something kicks off in a Sean gig, it's like a superpower is unlocked in him. A level of eloquence comes out He's eloquent already, but an extra tear of it comes out that he unlocks this sort of visceral rage in him where he then just speaks. Oh, he's just fucking amazing. His latest special on YouTube has this sort of these sort of moments in it because they're just going mad. He keeps calling the audience meth heads. I mean, where's that come from? It's fucking hilarious. There's a bit where a woman who's been asleep for the whole show stands up, loudly proclaims that Sean is brilliant and then falls asleep again within 10 seconds. It's absolutely insane. And Sean is just so good at dealing with that. So I want him to open this gig. There's a, he did a show called Brexit Stage Left on Vice TV, Vice Land, ages ago. And there's a gig that's like going a bit mad. And the word he picks to describe this audience is troglodytes. <laughs> where, 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 where is this come from? And the first time I heard it, he go, you fucking troglodytes like this. I was like, oh my God. It's like this level of genius just comes out. And so I want him to... Maybe the gig needs to be going a bit okay at the start of all these sets and then descend each time. Um, I want him to open it and to be the like complete Sean McLaughlin. I think if you're going to watch a Sean McLaughlin gig, you kind of almost want at least something to go wrong for five minutes so that you get the full picture because he's just unbelievable in that setting. You want the chaos with Sean. And I, you know, we, we talked about this on the recent episode with Sean. That's, that new special does capture that Sean gives you everything. It gives you the full Sean experience. Yeah. I, yeah. I think there was some debate around whether or not to include all of that stuff at some point in the edit of just to have a clean special instead. And I'm so glad they decided to keep it all in. Cause it also just like reflects on how good he is at dealing with those circumstances and how jealous I, I was already jealous of his material, but like how jealous I am of his ability to do that as well. I'm just like, 
I just absolutely love it. And I think I want this gig to be a car crash. There's no greater. I mean, I would have Sean just um, open middle and close it if, if I could. But I'll just have Sean open it. So really set the tone of what this gig's going to be. Perfect. Right. Who middles? Sean has opened. He's gone back. He's taken the picture in front of the poster. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And he'd have something original to say about that as well. He'd have a new angle on it. And everyone's seen that poster and had that feeling. Middle. This is where there was a, there's a quite a long list that I narrowed it down. That list includes obviously Nick Helm, of course. That's someone who comes to mind who's amazing in these environments. Um, Sam Campbell, Tim Key, Matt Ewins, Judy Love. These are all people I would like to watch off the cuff in this environment. However, of course, the middle is John Kurtz. Has to be. Has to be, right? I'm, I'll be honest with you. Ha I'm surprised that Helm... It's your, it's your choice. Yeah, I'm going Kearns. I can imagine you must have agonised. It's really hard because it's like, there's so many people who thrive in this environment and are so fun to watch. Um, the reason Kearns I'm going Kearns... Also, Kearns does that thing where someone like me, old needy chops, I would go to the audience, please. Not John. John would wait. Reese is not fearless. in the Absolutely yeah. fearless. fearless. John would stand and wait. He would. This is what I want him instead of instead of some of the others on the list, right? It's because we've already had Sean. Completely different approach to this chaos gig where everything's a fucking nightmare and going wrong. Kearns will stand in the silence. We'll try and get you to come to him. But even then, the comments he'll make about how it's going, just little asides, he's so soulful. He is so poetic. He is, I mean, there's times he says things in his set when it's going well that are like larking. Do you know what I mean? They're just like, fucking hell, where have you plucked that from? And making them hilarious or whatever. The way, the way he would use the silence in comparison to Sean ranting at them in the middle, it'd be so disarming for this chaos crowd. And I would just love to watch how he do it, especially with the wig and teeth. There's so much to there's so much to get on board with. And it's the fearlessness of the silence, because he's clearly has that fearlessness with his act when it's going well anyway, which I've never had. I'm fucking so scared of that silence. I never stand in the silence, constantly talking. Oh my god. You and me both, dude. I mean, absolutely. <laughs> gotta get gotta get laugh, gotta get laugh, gotta get laugh. Whereas yeah, Kurt, yeah, yeah. We, we, you know, we've all seen it, and it's why he's John Kearns. He, he, he will wait all day long, won't he? Tough gig and I'll speed up. Tough gig and I'll just be like speeding up thinking, okay, get to the punchlines quicker then. And just Kearns just does not do that. And it's just courage. And it's just so fun to watch. Great choice. Also, by the way, this would be a fun hang in the green room. Right. So far. <laughs> so far it'd be a fun hang. I'd say there's someone coming up that you'd be a bit like, the, the atmosphere's changing. In the right, green room a little bit. I'm, I'm on the edge of my seat. Who is closing? So there's a lot of reasons for this closer. Some are absolutely suits this gig. Would be great to watch rant about it. That's probably the main reason. And there's a really famous example of this person doing this on the internet. Another reason is it is objectively funny because this is an American. It is objectively funny to invite this person over. I want them to be in the country just for this. We tell them it's it... going to be a good gig. And then they go on stage and experience this. I know and who you it can is. Tell me, James, you can tell me who it is. Bill Burr. Yes, it's Bill Burr. And based on the clip, it's from 2006. He's in Philadelphia and he is just screaming. They, the audience have just been booing. It's like 10,000 people in this crowd at this 
sort of Hollywood Bowl type arena. They've been a nightmare. It's some like festival thing, isn't it? And loads of acts have been on. Bill Burr goes on. I don't approve of everything he says in this clip, by the way. There's some language that sort of, you know, we've moved on from. But the sort of premise he goes with, he just like is really laying into Philadelphia, sort of a how dare you. He doesn't care about how they react. He's talking nonstop. It's very different to the Kern's approach. And then just in between this, he's punctuating it with 10 minutes left. And then just goes and screams about them some more. Nine minutes. And he's just going absolutely nuts. And some of the insults he throws out at Philadelphia are so tame, but done with such <laughs> rage. At one point, he insults them by calling them, you one bridge having motherfuckers. Which is, which is joyous. <laughs> I <laughs> am obsessed with that as an insult. As it's, so, it's so Simpsons that like the crowd will be there going, he's hit us where it hurts most. Our one bridge. You one bridge. <laughs> but then also what you can audibly hear are folk screaming with delight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's weird because there's loads of booing going on, but there's moments where he's getting a laugh. And at the end of this, he gets a standing ovation. Yeah. And they've it's just crazy. It's just like the only way to handle this. You can go up and eat shit and get booed or whatever, or you can just go on and go, you know what? How fucking dare you? And it's kind of early-ish Burr as well. Oh, mate. It's a long the, time ago. In my opinion, it's the moment that, mate, that helps to make him. Right, exactly. And so I think it's got to be him. And I just think it's objectively funny as well to be like, Bill Burr has come over from America. He's doing one gig in the UK. It's Coventry Showcase Cinema. And we've told him it's the best gig in the in Britain. And he goes on and he gets there and everybody at the back of the room just being like, what the fuck? And it's too late to pull out now. So then he just has to go on. He'd go on with this energy as well, I think. Also, It'd just be think so exciting. A part of it, a part of him would enjoy it because I know that Bill Burr has pointed out that he used to do, a line he often trots out is about how he would do gigs in strip malls, right? So he's he's done the hard yards and then some. And he says, what's so unusual is that now he's at a level and, and has been for a good few years where he walks on stage to a standing ovation. Yeah. Yeah, America, man. That, that happens so often, I think. So I, so I think a part of him, while he would be grousing, you, this is unbelievable. You're kidding me. Who, who bugged this? You know, part of yeah. him would be like, this is actually going to take me back. Yeah, 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 exactly. There'd be a little element of that, yeah. But um, so Bill Burr going on and doing all of this. I mean, one of the things he says is he calls them in Philadelphia is a bunch of Ford Focus drivers. <laughs> <laughs> there's, a, there's a bit, uh, Dom Herrera, who's like this, uh, an icon of, of the US stand-up circuit, there's a bit where Bill Burr keeps going, you booed Dom Herrera. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You booed <laughs> Dom Herrera, which is sort of like, how, how could you, you know? Um, which I think, Dom, I've, I've seen interviews with Dom Herrera since and he sort of he sort of plays it down he's like it's very it's very sweet that he said that but I, you know it wasn't quite necessary but then there is a great bit where he points out that Philadelphia have given all the sporting icons that they've had mm. have, have built a statue of Rocky Balboa who yeah. he loves to point out is not a real person <laughs> yeah he keeps calling them racist because they actually have Joe Frazier but they've built one of Rocky and then just sc <laughs> screaming about that and it's weird because like everything he says because he the way he lays into their sports teams as well. I hope you never win the Super Bowl. I hope he picks some players. He's like, I hope he breaks his ankles on day one of the season. And they're all going nuts about it and booing and going crazy. And it's like all of this stuff you just hold in the back of your mind, but never actually say is just come out on this clip. And also this is kind of the early days of something being able to be filmed and then put on the internet, right? So now you would just be like, you probably actually would hold back a bit on this because you know that's possible. But because it wasn't really in your head that people film stuff on their phone and can put it on YouTube in 2006. 
when did when, when did YouTube even start? Wasn't that like 2006? Well, yeah, it was like Andy Andy Samberg. It was those boys that helped launch. This yeah, exactly. So YouTube, you know. I think this would have been like not even entered his head that this was anything other than a live experience. And then it does this and then does a lot for him. And I think I've seen interviews with him since where he's like, yeah, maybe regret it. Wouldn't approach it like that now. So maybe I need the 2006 Bill Burr to be headlining this gig. If anyone has listened to or read the, there's a self-help book called The Chimp Paradox, which is all about letting your inner chimp off the leash. And it's sort of like, as Reese, what reminded me was, as Reese said there, things that come out, you've lost your temper, things that are coming out that probably shouldn't be coming out. And, and that clip, I would say, is a, 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 almost like the ultimate example of someone's inner chimp just yeah. has been unleashed, but yet somehow Burr managed... I think he did it. He didn't do it deliberately, but he did. That became a real positive for him because it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was just so exciting. It was just such. Oh, my God. I just think he's the perfect closer for this. But I get I, I think, you know, what I mean, when I say the backstage hang changes somewhat with Bill Burr's presence. I've, I've interviewed Burr a couple of times and he's uh, he's a he's a lovely guy. He's a real, real sweetheart. Sure, but now you have to watch John Kearns and Sean McLaughlin smoke big cigars. Because <laughs> he'd be insisted on big cigars, I reckon. <laughs> Next to the Pursuit of Happiness poster. I, lo- I, mate, I love the dynamic of this hang. <laughs> well, wait to hear the MC, because I think the MC really ties the whole thing together. <laughs> right, very good. Right, so who MCs the gig? Ninja Benjamin. Oh! Come on. Wonderful. So obviously you're thinking maybe Johnny Vegas, but no, I think we've got that energy covered in certain ways. I mean, Johnny's completely original, but I think, you know, there's a certain energy that we've got. Ninja Benjamin, completely different energy. I'd like to see how she interacts with the three boys. Um, And just, Ninja makes me laugh possibly more than anyone. Just immediately on walking on stage, the sorts of things that she would say, this before even getting to the mic, she would just shout stuff on TV recordings. There's been stuff that she's just shouted on off at walking to the mic where I'm like, this is the funniest thing of all time. F- funny bones. Absolutely. And I, I want to see Ninja in a good environment where she's absolutely smashing it. But I think just someone who can handle absolutely everything. She would, she'd be the one that gets the standing ovation. Right. Ninja right. Benjamin, if Ninja Benjamin was a lawyer or an accountant or a mechanic or, you know, insert any job, she would just be relentlessly hilarious. <laughs> Yeah, and I think also, <laughs> I'd like to see what she says after, like when coming back on as an MC, after Sean, after Kearns. Um, I would love to see those lines. I think once, I don't really know Ninja, but years ago, brand new, I was comparing a gig and um, introduced. And I was like, I had like, I was a bit, my stuff was very pretentious back in those days. I'm not saying I am no longer pretentious, okay? People will have heard the first half of this podcast. But I am saying that my material is less so. I used to have jokes literally about poetry. I think I had a joke about Keats. What a wanker. And I did it comparing this thing and then introduced her to headline and she just came on. And it, like what I mean is just speaks the second like round a curtain before a mic and was just going, what a clever little boy. What a clever little boy. <laughs> like that before the mic. And I was just, just bursting with laughter at how funny that is. What a clever little boy. <laughs> what a clever little boy. It was so that she could go, what a clever little boy, not me. I'm a dirty bitch, which is how she often opens by saying, I'm a dirty fucking bitch. If you posh, get out. Uh, and it always is like, it's the most disarming of openers. Made me laugh so much. 
And there's literally clips of her doing Edinburgh and Beyond, the TV show on YouTube, where just walking on, opening like that. It's great. She's so great. She's so funny. She's so innately likable. Obviously, goes without saying how hard she roofs. Always be comedy. Great hang. I warmed up the island that she was on. Just pure joy to be mm. around. You know, I've heard, I've heard it said that certain comedians dial bits up and bits down for when they're off stage and on stage. I just think Ninia's 24-7 Ninia. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, I don't have as much experience even of hanging out with Ninia. I would love to, as you do. But um, I just think perfect for this. And also, this gig is so bad that if the crowd don't like... The idea is the gig is, un is unplayable. So, and then you've had Sean doing it the way he's going to play this unplayable gig. Kern's doing the way he'll do it. Bilbo doing it. And Ninja. It's basically proof, if the crowd aren't loving this, that they just didn't want anything. Because everything is covered, I'd say, pretty much. You've thrown everything, acts. including Don't... the kitchen sink. Exactly. And the crowd are still just a bunch of pricks. Um, and so I just think it's the perfect mix to prove this was never going to work. And then they can all get their picture in front of the pursuit of happiness. Right then, Reese, has there been an incident at a gig that you would love to somehow replicate at this gig? I guess so, because I want the gig to be terrible. And so <laughs> it's sort of different to how normal people answer this question. So like some examples, just I'll give you some examples of things at gigs where I'm like, this would be good to just happen because this is what. So for example, once at a gig in London, I there was like a really abusive guy in the front row who was a bit of a mafia boss vibe. He was dressed like a mafia boss, behaving like one, and he was just being a prick. And then I went on and sort of like had to deal with this. Maybe I was on first and had to deal with this. But was this Richard Gill? Yeah, that was it. Yeah, he was just clapping too much. Um, <laughs> just enjoying himself more than everyone else, and it was really ruining it. It was just, this guy was just a nightmare, and I think I like put him down, but in like a normal comedy way. And he made the set horrible. And then in the interval, he complained and the venue gave him two bottles of champagne. And I haven't played that venue since. And it's like a long running London gig, still getting the emails. And I'm not, I'm like, it's ridiculous. I complained about it. I was like, this is insane. And they were like, yeah, but he'll just leave a shitty trip advisor review. And I was like, right, okay, that's where we're at. So I'd love that sort of stuff to happen. I'd love the Coventry Showcase Cinema in this instance to be giving stuff out to the audience when they complain. Um, also once did a gig at Leicester Just The Tonic, which is a, it was at a venue that no longer is Leicester Just The Tonic. So that, that gig could be completely different. But um, this is years ago, horrible atmosphere in the room as soon as you arrived. It was like an old nightclub venue. Atmosphere was just horrible. I was doing like the middle 20 or whatever. The compare got booed onto the stage at the start of the night. So they just went, <laughs> it's now time for the comedy to begin. Please welcome your host. And then as they said, it just went, the whole crowd went boo. It was quickly established that the audience of about 80 people, uh, I think like 60 or 70 of them were one birthday. Oh. And that was a birthday. It was a birthday of this man. This It was his 60th birthday, this man, who again was dressed like a bit of a mafia boss. And all of his guests were scantily clad 25-year-old women. And then this one man, he didn't have a single guest who wasn't that. And it was like, what is going on here? What is happening here? Who is this man? And who are these people who have to be at his birthday? Has he just employed all of these people to be here? Do they actually really like this guy? Is he some sort of, does he, who knows? Who knows what's going on? The other 10 people were a stag do. 
And that was the whole thing. And so the gig was basically unplayable. By the time I got on in the middle, I watched the opener go on and just like do normal stuff and it'd just be a fucking nightmare. So then I decided, and I was really new. I made, I did something clever and then made a huge mistake. Because I went on and opened with, because they they weren't clapping you going, I opened with, it's great to be here. It's my birthday as well. <laughs> and everyone went nuts. They were loving it. They were like cheering for me. They were clapping. They were just like so happy for me. And then I couldn't resist. And this is like sort of sums me up. Couldn't resist going. It's not really. Is that all it fucking took to get to win you people over? You people are fucking pathetic. And then they just went nuts booing like like they've never booed before. So the, and then the I C, thought the C came in and then immediately yeah, yeah. It just, I, I pushed it back out. Yeah. And then I was like, oh, no. And then I went, nah, I'm joking. It is really my birthday. And by that point, they were like, boy, you cried birthday. You got no chance here. You're a prick and we hate you. This gig was so bad for me. Um, I got given the light. So that I'm sure your audience know what the light is, which is normally you ask for a light if you're doing 20 minutes or maybe 18 minutes to just show you, start wrapping up, you've got two minutes left. I got given a light at about 13. And I was like, I, I mean, I was really sort of hurt by this because I was like, oh, fuck, I'm being played off. The music starting at the Oscar, just get off, yeah, you're yeah, fucking yeah. boring. I'm being played off it. But at least when you get in the music at the Oscars, you've won. You've won an Oscar. You've I've just had the Oscar. death of my life, lied about it being my birthday and then called them all pricks for liking me. And then I'm getting the light of 13. I think I stayed on till about 18, got off. And then I was like, sorry, I know you gave me the light. And then thankfully the guy went, no, no, I was just basically trying to let you know, you don't have to do this if you don't want. <laughs> this is oh. so awful. If you want to come off stage, you could just come off stage. This is horrible. Oh. And I was like, oh, that's so sweet. Um, and I, but I was so my ego being so fragile, I was so personally affronted by the fact I thought I was being played off. I put myself through five more minutes of it just to be like, "Fuck you!" I'm staying on stage, thinking I was Bill Burr in 2006. In reality, he was doing me a favor, and I could have just ended it there. But so I want all of that to happen. I want it to be like a horrible birthday and it to be a, a nightmare. Um, yeah, I guess just that. I mean, like on my last tour, I had someone come up to me after a tour show that had been really fun and say, um, really accusatory, this couple come over and be like, um, that routine about murder mystery, you've stolen that. And I was like, what? Have I? I don't think I have. And they were like, yeah, 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 we saw it. We saw it a month ago in Stratford-upon-Avon. Another comedian did it. And I was like, yeah, was it on the 13th? Uh, and was it, <laughs> was it at the RSC, a mixed bill gig? And they were like, yeah. And I was like, yeah, was the comedian wearing this shirt that I am wearing right now? Yeah, that was me. That's my material. And they were like, no, it wasn't you. And I was like, yes, it was. And I like showed them a picture of me on stage at that gig. <laughs> they were like, oh, right. And there was no like, oh, sorry about that. They're just like, oh, right. And they just walked off. Oh, so God. So I want after every comedian comes off stage, I want that couple to go over and accuse them of stealing everything that they said. Um, all of that stuff I'd like to happen. Just everything that can make it as toxic as possible, basically. Has there been an incident that must not happen at this gig? Yeah, I don't want the security getting involved and making anyone's life easier. <laughs> I don't want the security going over and saying, that's enough now, lads, or like kicking anyone out. Security, if anything, I want security getting involved in the heckles and stuff. <laughs> security giving the crowd gear. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, just free, just racking up, racking up <laughs> free lines for everyone. Yeah, I just think... um. I'm doing it in a reverse way. So I just can't, there can't be positives going on, you know, like sometimes you do a venue and they're so good at it. They're so good. The security is so good at just quieting people down and making it comedy store famously amazing at this comedia. were very good at this. 
Um, I just don't want any of that. Any like warnings. No, like sometimes, um, I don't know if your audience will know this. Sometimes a stag do has to pay a behavioral deposit at a gig. It's fascinating. It'll be like, it'll yeah, be like 10 quid a head. And you, if you're not pricks, you get it back at the end of the night. And it's such a clever idea, obviously, especially on a stag do when there's often like a kit, a central kitty of money or whatever for rounds and stuff. That I don't want any of that though. I almost want the behavior to be encouraged. And you yes, to... filming and flash photography is allowed. <laughs> you want to pay them more for, for being dicks. <laughs> exactly. That sort of behavior, yeah. You guys could earn a fortune tonight. <laughs> Have you have you ever had like anyone throw anything or you know anything out of the ordinary? Listening to Ed's one, yes, uh, the other day when he was like, "I don't have a good memory for this sort of stuff." I'm really the same as that. I definitely have had circumstances that have been, I've had like horrible circumstances, but none of them. I just, I'm mean, either really good at repressing them. I don't really, even when it was like trying to think of positives, I was like, I don't know that I. Other than like, oh, the gig was great and the the material went well. I'm like, what do I? No, I'm so bad at remembering that sort of stuff. I don't think I've ever had anything thrown at me. I remember t there, was, there were three lads who, I can't, I can't prove this obviously, but in my experience had done cocaine mm. and they were tall lads. They wouldn't stop talking. And I kept putting them down, putting them down, putting them down. And then at a break, this, this was a, this was, I won't say where the gig was, but anyway. Wasn't the Tommy Field, but at the break they were physically finger jabbing me in the chest, and I do remember thinking, "This isn't, this isn't what we all signed up for." Exactly. I had one once where it was kind of a Christmas gig. It was in this pub somewhere, and it was like it kicked off big time. During I was opening, I kind of got the least of it because they were less drunk. But during my set, there was a bloke who just, when there was like a gap in my set, he would just shout, "Get to the chopper." like that and when i asked him what was going on he was like well i'm trying to become an impressionist <laughs> and i'm working on my impressions and i was like cool shut up then after the show he came up to me and he was like so how do i get into it then because i really want to be an impressionist i really want to like go and on stage and do this and i said well first of all if you're gonna he was like oh, oh you know i was only trying to get involved because i was trying to like you know it was an opportunity for me to try out my impressions to an audience and i was like not during someone else's set if you're going to do this book in some gigs go do it yourself don't do it during someone else's set because obviously you wouldn't like it if that happened the other way around etc i'm saying this to him and he looks me like really intently in the eye and shakes my hand with both his hands and just says i will never forget this advice as if i told him something mind-blowing it was one of the most basic common courtesy no that i is know possible. I know this, that guy, it turns out, was Alistair McGowan. <laughs> well, exactly. And that's how we got ourselves here. Yeah. Well, at least he was pretending to be. I, will, I, was once, I once warmed up a show, and this, I, I won't say which show, this particular show had a member of the public on it, right, to do a thing. And the guy and his wife came up to me after the show, and the wife said, my husband is desperate to be a comedian. And I said, yeah, I can help. Uh, you know, I, I run this comedy. I always be comedy. We've, we, we have a list of open mic emails. You know, sometimes we'll get people come up, coming up to us and say, how do I get started in comedy? And, and, I, and I said, give me your email address and I will send you the list of the, of the open mic nights that you need to contact. And him and the wife were pulling this sort of face. Um, uh, do, you know what they, do you know what they were after? 
they 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 thought that the next step for the husband was to be like a guest on eight out of ten cats yeah great they they thought that great. by virtue of him doing that little funny little throwaway bit with a member of the public he thought that the next step was and this week we've got john richardson sarah millican insert name of that man from that tv <laughs> yeah i think i don't think people people don't realize back to the there's still a lot of thing. people yeah there's still a lot of people who look but at it and go great great i'll just one in there and that's how you be a comedian they don't realize you, that you do your own tour you start off you with your own tour and then you hopefully you get spotted to go on telly from that they i think people are aware of the idea of like being spotted or whatever but they think you just start off yeah you're just doing proper they don't have any idea about these no, you're in a pub playing to other people doing the exact same thing as you and no one else. I stopped playing five aside with my old uni mates on a Monday because of when I started gigging. And we went for a drink after my last match. We all went for a drink and I was explaining how it worked. And the, every single one of them nearly spat their drink out because they couldn't believe that I was doing it for free. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. They thought from like gig number one <laughs> and there's your thousand pounds yeah exactly yeah yeah yeah. it's like to be honest yeah it's like the way people guess even like fees for stuff do you have you have you experienced this where people will guess like how much it pays to certain gigs but also like you know appearances on certain panel shows or whatever people i find either think right this is just just for me the way people speak to me they either think oh struggling artist god you don't have a penny to your name like, oh, let me give you some hand-me-down clothes because you must be fucked. You want some food? You want a warm meal? Or they think, Reese, you have a hundred million pounds in your pocket because you've been on. Te- I've seen you on telly one time. A hundred percent. And before I went into comedy, I thought, well, as soon as someone's done a shred of television, they are immediately a trillionaire. Yeah. Um, I, a, a friend of mine, just happened to be in a, a, a studio audience. And I just warmed up the Made in Chelsea Christmas special. And you earn every penny. Right? Yeah. You earn every penny. <laughs> they came up to me afterwards and they went, oh, um, do, you, do, you, do, you, do you do this for free? Mad. What? Madness. Yeah, I just thought, just thought I'd pop down and help these guys out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, Sorry, just, I'm well, aware. Why not? Well, I love Made in Chelsea, so I wanted to, I just, oh, I want I, to meet the cast. I just, I just really love these guys. So I love Rick aware. Edwards so much. I will do anything for him. Rick Edwards is a, a, prince, a prince, isn't he? But I'm aware that we probably, we, I apologise because we we may be coming across a little bit chippy here because there probably are some listeners thinking, oh, actually, I, I, <laughs> I would have asked all these same questions. Sure. But there's, um, yeah, I remember doing it also, but it's also interesting how fascinated people are about the sort of money side of it because also it's so variable. It's like not like there is an answer. It's so variable for the individual as well. I did it the first time I'd ever did a corporate. It was like barely was a corporate. Everyone was stood up. It was just like, go on, present some awards, but people will be milling about. We've got like a race car arcade game and all this sort of stuff. So it was barely a corporate at all, really. I didn't even have to wear a suit, but I was just doing it with some cue cards. And afterwards, I had to stick around for something afterwards or like, I don't know, I was just waiting for an Uber. And all these people who were at the corporate were just coming over to me, just being like, how much do you get paid for that then? And I was like, one, that's an insane question to just come over and straight away ask me. And then I said, oh, don't worry about it. And they were like, can we guess? And then they all guessed. And the amounts they were guessing, I was like, I've been absolutely stitched up there. Instantly they were guessing. This is my first one. I was like, probably like 23, 
I hadn't really done anything. I had no profile or anything. I was just doing it. And they were all guessing like 25 grand, <laughs> 40 grand. I was like, are you insane? Even say, I'm effectively here for free if that's what you think that I was doing this for. I was doing it for basically slightly above normal gig money. And so I was like, I had to just be like, yeah, 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 something like that. Because I was just so embarrassed by the fact that they obviously thought, well, you know, when you're I doing did, a corporate event. When I did that one episode of EastEnders, one of my best mates said, did you get £40,000? <laughs> Such a funny, specific question. Did you get yeah, 40,000 yeah, pounds? Yeah, I got 40 grand. <laughs> <laughs> Imagine if you did, as a rule on EastEnders, you do one line on EastEnders, it's minimum 40 grand. Fucking hell. <laughs> it's, oh, God. I'm going to um, say no. <laughs> no, it wouldn't have been that, would it? Equity, equity minimum or a bit above? I mean, look, I'd love to go back on. So, you know, I've, yeah. I've no <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. complaints because <laughs> that £35,000 was very handy. <laughs> Went a long way. What, what uh, oh, now, uh, Reese, how do you, the all perfect, what a great episode, exceeded our very high expectations. How do you unwind after a gig? Um, after this gig in particular that I'm describing, I think it's like an eight pinter. I yeah. think it's been so, it's like an eight pinter, then it's sharing horror stories, isn't it? Get the be... blonde out. Really well, exactly, yeah. And I think this is a good bunch to be sharing sort of like gig stories. They'll all have great anecdotes. That would be a good table to sit around. Um, me, after a gig, I don't know that there's much unwinding, really. I just will watch YouTube or whatever. I'm very bad at getting back. Like, Let's say there's a long journey after a tour show or something, and then you get back late and you're knackered. I'm very bad at going to bed straight away. It's like... There's something psychological about like, but I've not had enough time to myself doing nothing yet. Oh, Reese, so similar. Yes. So you have to just you know, does, I'm, then I'm annoyed the next day because I'll be tired and be like, yep. but I did nothing in that time. I just mindlessly watch. The thing I'm watching a lot at the moment is um, Tubes from Soccer AM and his brother Ange and Jimmy Bullard have a YouTube golf channel on which they play golf with like Declan Rice one week or Ben Shepherd the next week. And it's so fucking entertaining and I love watching it. And I just basically get home and watch those videos. And I've only just got into it really. So I've still got a massive archive of them to go through from the past. So generally I just spend my time watching those videos um, after a gig the other day. Actually, this was after I went to watch a gig, but it was a genuinely excellent idea. I went to watch um, Kate Ballant in at the Soho Theatre sensational stuff and rose matafeo and sam campbell were there and we got outside and rose was looking at her phone immediately and then was like right i'm gonna go to this arcade do you want to come to this arcade and it's the one on wardle street where it says vegas as you go downstairs and there's just a normal arcade and then we went there and i was like we should just do this is how you should unwind after a gig it was amazing just awesome. going in there there was a three-player game that we all played together we had to just complete it was like climbing this like completion ladder that was like 22 levels. It took about an hour. We did that. And then I felt like completely satisfied to just go home. It was per it was like, oh, right. You just need a nearby arcade. Oh, that's nice. That was good fun. When me and Adam Hess did a little tour together years ago and we lived together, there was a few nights where we were staying away and it would be like, we'd finish. And also you finish quite late. So like bars and stuff often are like shutting after one drink's worth. And there'd be a few times where, a couple of times where we were like, Let's go to a casino and just sit at a poker table and get some drinks to just like slowly play poker. But for not very, very much money, obviously. 
just like do that. I was like, that was a great way to unwind because we could still have a chat. You're sort of doing something. It's sort of the classic male bonding as well of like, you're both facing the same way. So you feel like you can actually speak. That's what golf is as well, isn't it? It's like, there's something underneath this that is the reason we're here, but we could have an actual candid conversation if we wanted to now. Whereas if I'm opposite the person and there's not a podcast mic there, I'm sort of less likely to reveal stuff due to toxic masculinity. And so- yeah, I would unwind doing something like that. One of those things. What I went through a bad phase of was going home and then playing someone online at, at FIFA, which is like mm. most e- somehow more adrenaline fueling than a than a gig. So I'm going. <laughs> I'm, I'm going yeah. to bed after a ten six five game. <sighs> Why can't <Yeah>. I sleep? <laughs> right. <sighs> you know. Yeah, I um sometimes I feel like when it's like going for a drink with a big group or something after a gig, I'm like, no, because then I have to be more on than a gig. I'm more switched on for that. It's more, it's harder work. So it's not unwinding at all. But I did look up some, I, to see if I tweeted anything about unwinding after a gig, to see if I just can't remember. I just think I searched search gig in my tweets. And I did find a few examples to your point of me saying, there's a few tweets that say, gig so bad, you immediately go home and sell Messi on Ultimate Team. <laughs> just, and I remember doing that. Got, I walked, remember the long walk home from the tube. Got home, and just like you know what, fuck it. I'm just selling Messi. I'm just full self destruct. There was one that was gig so bad. You go home and immediately buy twelve thousand FIFA points. Oh. Um, that's eighty quid. Yeah, that would that probably be the gig money. I was just yeah, lots of those sorts of things. Um, Joe Lysett years ago said that he would like if the gig was bad, he would spend the money on like a treat, so that he would have in his head of like it's okay because that paid for this. But you get yourself in a bit of a slippery slope there where you're like, well, it wasn't great. It like, wasn't bad, but it wasn't great. So I'll spend that. And then like every corporate, you're just suddenly going, well, you know, I'll just buy a car. Or <laughs> it's 40 grand after all. Yeah. So we're actually, we're another episode of EastEnders. I'm going to <laughs> Yeah. Um, yeah. And then you get into the, the thing of like tanking it on purpose just for a new pair yeah. of <laughs> Exactly. Gosh, I'm, I'm going to smash this gig. Oh, hang on a minute. I better... You, you, no, you know what? Some horrendous name just to justify buying a jumper. I need a new boiler, so um, yeah. this this has got to be a bad month. Why, why is the comedian flinging his own shit at us? Oh, <laughs> uh, Reese, awesome, huge, huge and heartfelt thanks. If you want to see Reese on tour, see the last few dates, reesejames.co.uk. Yes, please come along, especially if you are in, I think Gloucester and Brighton. Come to those ones. A lot of tickets to shift in those ones. I think I, I won't say who it was, but I told you a story of a, 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 a very famous comedian told me that if, they're, if they have specific dates that they need to sell and they go on like, say, Sunday brunch, they will look down the barrel of the camera and say things like, especially Derby, Aberdeen, Dundee. And they say it is insane how effective that is. Great. Well, I'm going on Sunday brunch in a couple of weeks, so I'll do that. <laughs> when you see me do that on Sunday brunch, look down the barrel of the camera. Brighton. You'll know. It's because of that piece of advice. Well, yeah. I think I think the person's theory is that imagine people who live the surrounding area are almost like, oh, God, right, yeah, okay. Uh, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly, yeah. Direct call to action. That's what you need. Not None of this casual bullshit. Yeah, come right. if you want, whatever. Who cares? But I'm trying Reece, to, this is this is the tail end of a tour, James. I'm trying to maximize profit. Okay, the show's nearly done. Maximize profit and hope the gigs go badly so I can buy myself a sort of a fleece. <laughs> uh, Reese, huge and half thanks. That was awesome.
Pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. God bless you. Uh, huge and heartfelt thanks to one of our absolute favourites. We love we love him on stage and we love him off stage. Right, favourite Reese James memory. I was thinking about this. It's so nice with Reese. We've known him for so long. There's so many to choose from. Uh, one of them. I think about this a lot. He was doing. So during the pandemic, he was doing a lot of online gigs for us. Um, and he had decided our audience had seen everything he possibly could do. So he wrote a bespoke set with images and stuff. It it was like a totally new style of comedy for him. And it was really amazing. If you've ever seen How To of John Wilson, it really reminded me of that. And it was Reese just doing something completely different, something he'd normally done. And the result was great. I really hope something he does again is brilliant. Yeah, agreed. He was he was so wonderful. What a treat. You know what, Tim? If we were going to do a top 10 best online comedians, he'd, it, that, you know, that did ABC, he'd be in the 10, wouldn't he, I think? He was. He always had those uh, rewritten New York illustrations, if you remember that. You know what we've been getting more of recently? Are you doing more online comedy show emails? Yeah. Maybe we, we we have talked about doing a live online version of the podcast. Yeah, we have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Guys, if this is a good idea, <laughs> drop us a tweet or something or an email or whatever. Right, my favorite Reese James memory. Reese James and I, so right, Ramesh Ranganathan couldn't make the succession red carpet premiere as part of the British, I think it was the British Film Festival last year. Uh, and so he gave me his pair of tickets. And so Reese James and I attended the red carpet premiere of Succession at the, I think it was at the BFI. Now, what we did was we panicked because we didn't know how to dress. <laughs> And so we we overthought it. And so we were WhatsApping each other all day. What are you wearing? What are you wearing? What are you wearing? And in the end, we got it wrong. And we went with like white trainers, smartish trousers, jumper, and a a, a, a wintry coat. And Looks I got there. Well, I got there first. And what the person I saw when I realized we'd got it badly wrong. I WhatsApped Reese James and said, mate, we're in trouble here. Because the first person I saw was Hannah Waddingham. If you Google, dear listener, play along at home. If you Google Hannah Waddingham, doing it now, succession. Uh, yeah, there you go. Google image, Hannah Waddingham, succession. Look what she is wearing probably the most glamorous person I've ever seen in my life. So she was, she made anyone attending the Oscars look frankly common. <laughs> I'm ne I'm, my jaw was on the floor. She radiance, you know, I mean, you know, what, what an outfit. And then Reese James and I turned up looking like we had just come from a barbecue at center parks. <laughs> uh, right. Oh, as always, a five-star review 
uh, makes the world go around. So yes, do us a favor, please leave a five star review. Tim, any other business? Um, I don't think so. Uh, thank you very much as always. We'll see you next week. Uh, thanks for all the shares. Honestly, all that, the retweets and all that malarkey and the, the those of you shared it on the foil arms and hog clips on the Insta stories and all that. It's honestly, uh, it's not lost on us. So thank you very much. And thanks for all your correspondence. We'll see you soon. Take care. Bye-bye-bye-bye. <laughs>